COVID law briefings are brought to you by Public Health Law Watch, supported by the George Consortium of Health Law Professors and the Center of Public Health Law Research at Temple Law School. Uh, I am Scott Burris, uh, director of the center, and I'm here today with Jennifer Bard and Holly Fernandez. Jennifer is visiting professor at the University of Florida Levin College of Law. Holly is the John Russell Dixon Presidential Assistant Professor of Medical Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania's Pearl School of Medicine. So Holly, um, while we await the vaccine, a summer miracle. Some drugs have gone quickly from someone's guess to off-label use to clinical trials and something called an emergency use authorization. Can you tell us all about this remdesivir hydroxychloroquine and the various regulatory mechanisms through which they are getting patients before the usual FDA trials are completed? Sure, of course. Well, thank you for having us. Um, I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Unfortunately, I don't think we're in for a summer miracle here, um, but there is some good news. So according to FDA, there are dozens of products that are in development for both treatment and prevention of COVID-19. Some of those are wholly investigational, brand new, haven't been approved for any use yet. And some drugs that are being looked at have actually been around for a while. We also know that clinical trials are getting off the ground at record speed. If you take a look at clinicaltrials.gov, there's hundreds of trials um, in the U.S. and and globally um, that are intended to address this this virus and this disease. The bad news um, is that we seem to have forgotten the importance of rigorously designed research in our rush to address the pandemic, when in fact it's doing rigorous randomized controlled trials um, that are really going to be our way out of this, right? Um, Our failure to do those rigorous RCTs is actually slowing down our ability to know what's safe and effective. Um, But you asked about these regulatory mechanisms to get COVID drugs to patients before trials are completed. And there's actually a lot of different ways that that happen. One is just simple off-label use. And Jennifer, I think, is going to talk about that in more detail. Um, So let me talk about the uses of unapproved products that haven't been FDA approved for any indication. And there's a few different ways that those can get to patients. The first and most important is that they can be provided through clinical trials. And that's going to require an investigational new drug application or an IND from FDA. And that's intended to make sure that there are proper protections in place for participant safety and that trial designs will be able to support marketing approval, assuming that the data come in and, and are positive. FDA has also launched something called CTAP, the Coronavirus Treatment Acceleration Program, and they're turning around protocol reviews in 72 hours or less, which is pretty substantial. Um, The regs give them 30 days, actually, to comment on um, protocols and decide whether they can proceed or put a clinical hold on them. So they're moving things pretty quickly. Um, Trials also are going to require IRB approval and oversight. IRBs have been working like, you know, mad to turn these around as quickly as possible, too. And many institutions are prioritizing review of COVID trials over other research. So we really want patients to use that pathway to access products, right? We want them participating in clinical trials because that's how we're going to get the data about what's safe and effective or what's not. But outside of clinical trials, patients can also get access to unapproved products through something called expanded access. This is a longstanding FDA program that patients that have serious or life-threatening diseases like COVID who have exhausted their approved treatment options, and we know there are none for COVID, it allows them to get an investigational treatment um, if the risks and benefits are reasonable and they're unable to participate in a clinical trial. Companies have to agree to provide the product. They can say no. Um, FDA has to sign off. IRBs have to sign off. And then physicians and companies have reporting responsibilities around safety and they have to report final outcomes. The data 
data we get from expanded access is important, but it's nowhere near what we get from um, from a clinical trial. So expanded access has been used for Gilead's remdesivir, um, as well as for convalescent plasma and some other investigational product for COVID. And it can be done on a patient by patient basis, or it can be done on these kind of broader treatment protocols that allow you to provide an investigational product to a bunch of people at once. Um, right to try is another pathway, but I think we can skip right over it. Nobody is really using it at all, let alone for COVID-19. And then the last regulatory pathway that I wanted to mention is this emergency use authorization. Um, and that allows um, patients to access products that have not received traditional marketing approval, um, but it's different from expanded access or clinical trials. So the most important thing to know about the EUA is that it's not traditional marketing approval. The standards are weaker and it's only temporary. So the first requirement for EUA is that there's a declared public health emergency involving a threat from a chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear agent, right? So here we've got the SARS-CoV-2 virus. That's our, um, our biological agent. We have this public health emergency declaration, and that authorizes FDA to grant an EUA for products that may be effective um, for, you know, treating a serious or life-threatening disease. That's a much different standard from traditional marketing approval, where you're expected to actually demonstrate safety or efficacy, right? Here, we're just talking may be effective. And as I said, the EUA is temporary. It only lasts as long as the public health emergency or until there's traditional marketing approval or FDA withdraws the EUA. Um, FDA has granted several EUAs so far, um, a lot for diagnostics and antibody tests, as well as some um, devices like ventilators or mechanisms for sterilizing PPE. But so far, it's only granted two emergency use authorizations for therapeutic. One is that it granted an EUA for certain formulations of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. These are anti-malarial products that have been approved um, by FDA for those anti-malarial um, indications, as well as for lupus and, and rheumatoid arthritis. Basically, what that EUA did for those drugs was allow product to be donated to the strategic national stockpile and distributed through that strategic national stockpile for off-label use. Second, FDA issued an EUA for remdesivir. Um, this is Gilead's antiviral product. It was originally developed for Ebola, but has not yet um, received traditional marketing approval for any use. So NIAD reported um, some top-line results from its remdesivir study last week, um, indicating that it shortened the time to recovery by about four days. Didn't have any statistically significant impact on mortality, but FDA basically said, look, this satisfies that criteria of may be effective, um, and so we're going to authorize use of this product through the expanded, uh, excuse me, the emergency use authorization. So that's that's it. Um, I know it's a okay, long- Okay, well, you set the table for it pretty impressively, and I'm just trying to get clear because we've got drugs being used, treatment and drugs being used in search and FDA doing things, and it's got something to do somehow with who can get it and how it's distributed. Jennifer, maybe you sort out the regulatory differences that matter here. Okay, well, first of all, I, I really want to thank um, the George Consortium, uh, Temple Law School, Northeastern Law School, Scott, and it's just a pleasure to be here with Scott and Holly. Um, so I think the place to start to make sense out of all this is, is uh, I'm going to start with the FDA, but I'm going to leave the federal government uh, very quickly because we're going to move to state to state law. But when the FDA approves um, a new drug, um, they approve it for uh, based on the studies that were provided. And so they approve it for a specific use uh, with a specific population sometimes. I mean, it depends on what, what information they got. But once they approve it, so if, once they approve a drug to treat malaria and it's approved 
approved. At that moment, any licensed physician in the United States can prescribe it for any reason to any patient. There are very few exceptions. I think one of the few exceptions um, uh, that sort of came up with the Michael Jackson case when people when it was found that he was given anesthesia drugs out of the hospital, that there were some some uh, protections put in that that not a, that you could only use them in hospitals. But I would say it is a, the tiniest proportion of FDA approved drugs that any doctor couldn't use for something else. Interestingly, last FDA point before I get to states, the people who make the drugs can't advertise them for uses other than for that which they were approved. So if you say, well, we've approved this drug for uh, malaria, the company in theory cannot go around and say, hey, you know what? It also works for uh, COVID-19. So that's off-label, right? So the the label, yeah, the label is what it's approved for. Because off-label use is completely legal, there is nothing illegal for any doctor to be prescribing um, hydrochloroquine to any um, patient. The issue then becomes, well, how does this emergency use authorization have any effect if you could do it otherwise legally? And uh, I'm going to mention three things. One is to start with what Holly said, which is once the emergency is declared, um, the drug can be donated to the strategic stockpile and essentially becomes free. So it's administered under those conditions and it's both free and available. So one of the things we saw was there's a big rush on those drugs um, as soon as it, it started to be heard that they were effective. So that's one one thing it can do. Um, there's some implications for the military. There's some restrictions on um, on giving the military drugs, uh, military personnel drugs off label. That's completely fixed by an emergency use authorization. And then there's money. So Medicaid and Medicare have restrictions and so does private health um, companies on paying for uh, a drug that is being used off label. Now, in individual cases, that can be renegotiated. So it's not, it's not um, the, the emergency use authorization isn't irrelevant to off label prescribing to drugs that are already prescribed, but it's very different. Uh, they're very different restrictions. So if a drug is approved for something, then a doctor can prescribe it. And that's not research. That is treatment. Okay. Well, so now we've got this even more complete picture. But Holly, when you started, you you were making a distinction between um, a system that is designed to make sure that the drugs we ultimately get as consumers are safe and effective. And another set of mechanisms that as we watch, um, as non-expert, at least from my perspective, seem to allow um, the market to give people unproven medications just because they want something or because the president has a gut feeling. How do these two things, how does the research and make sure it's safe model now fit in today's world with this, uh, you know, the president is instructing people to get a drug out of the world? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, COVID has put this in sharp relief, but actually this has been going on for quite a bit longer. So even, you know, looking back to the right to try debate, right, about patients and their doctors should be allowed to do what they want. And it's really a great question, Scott, because FDA has historically and continues to be in a very tough spot, right? Not only for COVID, but in general, constantly balancing speed and safety. So if it moves too slowly or if it requires too much certainty about a product, people die. If it moves too fast or not enough certainty, people die. And so finding that sweet spot between those two extremes is really difficult. And there's tons of disagreement about precisely where the the balance should fall. So FDA exists for a number of reasons, right? Um, Keeping products off the market until they're demonstrated safe and effective obviously protects patients from unsafe and ineffective products. But it also has the critical benefit of producing knowledge. If companies can market their products without proving they're safe and effective, 
perspective, they will, right? If you just look at the dietary supplement industry, um, that's exactly what we see there. Uh, before we had the modern FDA, we had snake oil salesmen, you know, hawking their wares without evidence. And so requiring pre-market approval forces companies to produce the data that we all need to make informed treatment decisions. But that process of requiring clinical studies takes time. And during that time, people could be dying, right? Or the argument is that they don't have time to wait. Now, we don't know that those investigational products are actually going to help patients until they go through adequate testing, and it's possible that they could hurt them. So it's not necessarily the case that patients are being made to wait for the good stuff, right? It might actually be the case that we don't have any good stuff yet. That's what we're trying to study. But FDA is constantly trying to find the right balance. So for serious and life-threatening conditions, it's generally been willing to accept less evidence before making products available to patients. It has an accelerated approval program that allows products to be approved based on surrogate endpoints like tumor shrinkage rather than mortality with follow-up testing after the product is on the market. We don't need to use that for COVID because the, the disease moves so quickly. Um, you can actually test mortality um, pretty, pretty easily. But the point stands that when the stakes are high, we might be willing to accept greater uncertainty. And so the same is true for other life-threatening conditions that lack good alternatives. That's why we have expanded access. But we have to make sure that accepting some uncertainty doesn't preclude our ability to get certainty through clinical trials, right? So that that's the constant balance that FDA is trying to... Um, well, so I guess the question here is, how are we doing? I mean, on the one hand, I mean, I really want you guys to address question. One is, you know, with the whistleblower complaint that's just been made available, it looks like we've gone, I mean, that the political influence may have had a role in some of these decisions. So we're not even talking about that fine balancing. Right. And on the other hand, you know, I guess we do have a question in this instance, um, is how do we get people to sign up for clinical trials if they can get drug free, um, you know, just by asking their doctor? And, and are we going to get the knowledge or what has to happen so we can get the knowledge? Let me put it that way. What would you recommend? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say, and then I'm going to, you know, give this to Holly for recommendations of how to fix the system is that there, there, this is not a news item that the FDA is politicized. I mean, the whole point of the FDA is it is its budget is determined and its existence is it determined by Congress. So there's a con law 101 aspect to this, which is that the FDA is a creature of politics and government. Um, and there's nothing but stories and anecdotes of people lobbying the FDA. Because, you know, we haven't mentioned this, but whoever makes the cure for this or the vaccine is going to make a lot of money. So one of the other pressures on the FDA is when when they give approval to one company's drug, um, you know, the other companies are mad. You know, they're, they're, they think, well, maybe, maybe if we, you know, had waited another week, you would have found out that our drug was just as good or better. So um, I am sympathetic to their juggling a lot, but I think that, you know, I'm reading the um, 89-page whistleblower complaint uh, as we speak, and I think that you just have to acknowledge that politics are always going to be a part of this. Well, but that seems kind of cynical that we should, I mean, your, your argument proves too much. I mean, if the FDA surely is subject to politics, but unless your argument is really Trump is what government really is, and it's always politics, and there's nothing you can say, the problem is how does working within a natural well, you're talking context, about what should the FDA I'm talking about Congress. I'm saying it's a funded agency. Well, I'm actually not talking, I'm saying its budget is always going to be sure. subject to priorities, um, and so it's it's not necessarily the a bad what's thing. The limit, right? Like, and how do we, we, we don't want to say there's no such thing as good government, it's all just politics, and who's ever got the money to influence the Congress? I mean, we, we could say that, but that's not very hopeful. I suppose the question is, if we assume that the FDA does actually take its job seriously and within the limitations of politics is trying to do a good job, what's that good job look like now? Well, I yeah. think you have all those expert, you know, the people who work 
work at FDA are incredibly dedicated to what they do. And I think, you know, I think there's going to be disagreement. So I think part of the problem is there is no one right answer um, or one right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what, you know, the the bright um, whistleblower complaint points out is that there are these dedicated scientists who are, you know, career officials within the government and um, have been pushed to the sidelines when they have the expertise that's necessary to protect patients. So I think, um, you know, Bright was at BARDA, um, or, and, but I'm, I'm focused on FDA here. And so I think FDA has really missed an opportunity in the course of this pandemic to help the American people understand why it exists, what its role is, why we need to be rigorous about clinical trials, and that faster is not always better. So yes, we're in a pandemic circumstance. We have this public health emergency, but FDA knows how to do this, right? I mean, it's responsible for evaluating drugs in life-threatening conditions all the time, right? So what's so special about COVID compared to cancer or ALS or these other diseases where people are dying and we don't have um, safe and effective treatments for them? If we throw out science in the context of COVID, I really worry that it will have long-term implications for these other um, disease areas where we've been saying to patients, no, really, you've got to wait until the clinical trials are in to know what's safe and effective. And you're going to end up shooting yourself in the foot if you just try anything, then we're never going to be able to get the evidence that we need about what's safe and effective, right? This will have long-term implications for what the agency is supposed to be doing. It's a science-based agency, funding from Congress, obviously, um, but it should be standing above politics here. So it sounds like we're going to learn some lessons about how FDA can or should manage the inevitable pressures that it faces given its structure and role. Well, Um, we have a lot of lessons. You know, the thing is, we have a lot of lessons from the days of AIDS. So this is not, you know, uh, it's always good to learn lessons and to, you know, look back, but I think you can be guided now about, you know, the the pressures that it has faced before. They're not completely unique. Um, the, the, situ- the, the disease is new, but as Holly is saying, the problem isn't new. Do you think that that in it, that, that we were, ha- I don't recall President Reagan or Bush or Clinton um, ordering essentially to release drug for treatment. Um, there was certainly an urgency to, to find drug, but, you know, Anthony yeah. Fauci, who was at that ballet, was much more in charge than he seems to be this time. It was the opposite, right? Right. It was exactly the opposite. It was, you know, that there were complaints that FDA was moving too slowly and it was the patient advocates who were pushing for, you know, for speed here. But it certainly wasn't coming from the White House. No, so different, like different a bit of a, politics of that. So we got a bit of a Goldilocks lesson, you know, they sometimes FDA is too fast, sometimes low, and we'd all wish it would be just right. Uh, well, thanks for, for this. It's been our most interesting, just I think most interesting dance around the tip of the iceberg for some of these issues. Um, and I want to thank both of our speakers for the incredible wealth of knowledge they uh, they bring to this and and for both the hope and despair that they inspire because I think we <laughs> somehow put those together into action. Um, so thanks everybody for joining us. COVID Law Briefings are produced by Faith Halleck and Bethany Saxon. They're archived at the Wheat and Health Law podcast, twihl.com with thanks to Professor Nick Perry, the Hall Reader Professor of Law and Executive Director of the Hall Center for Law and Health at Indiana, Indiana University, Robert H. McKinney, School of Law in Indianapolis. Thanks also to Charles Strong and the Network for Public Health Law for their assistance, technical assistance and otherwise. Join us tomorrow when Lance Gable from Detroit will talk to Nick Harry and Timothy Litton about immunity waiver at various levels, ranging from PrEP to CARES, malpractice provisions already in place, uh, immunity for the nursing home industry and more. Meantime, please keep washing those hands.